Hello, and welcome to the Limbic Educational Series on the CAR-T revolution, where we take a look at this rapidly evolving treatment landscape. In this second of our two-part series, we'll be discussing what's next for CAR-T and its availability and funding in the UK, but also what's the latest evidence about its use and how it's expanding into other areas. Joining us to discuss all this are Dr. Graham Collins, consultant haematologist and lymphoma lead at Oxford University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, and we also have Dr. Francis Seymour, consultant haematologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust. So thank you both so much for talking to us about this today. Uh, Graham, I'd like to start with you, as I believe Oxford are one of the new centres joining those already providing CAR-T in the UK. Can you tell us more about that and the work that that has involved and, and when do you hope to be up and running? Yes, thanks, Emma. That's right. So currently we're not a CAR-T infusion centre, but we are hoping to be open by the end of the year. And what the, the aim now is that every allogeneic transplant centre in the UK will be able to onboard for CAR-T so long as they go through the appropriate governance steps. And there's 23 centres in the last count in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So that's the, the sort of longer term goal. Um, in terms of the steps that are required, um, first of all, you need to have the appropriate JC accreditation. JC is our, is our body that accredits for stem cell transplantation, and in this case as well, immune effector cell therapy, and that's the sort of level of accreditation that the centre needs. And that currently is a bit of a rate-limiting step because JC have been affected by COVID, and so there is a bit of a backlog. They're working really hard to clear that, um, but it does take time for centres to have that JC accreditation. We have now got ours um, and some other centres as well that are planning to onboard this year also have theirs. And then it's a matter of working with the, the individual uh, drug companies that produce the CAR-T. Uh, so currently that is Kite Gilead and Novartis, and they have their own governance procedures. They do audits. Um, you have to respond to those audits. Uh, you then will have to do a sort of dry run uh, to make sure that everything is up and running. The right contracts obviously have to be put in place and all the staff need to be trained um, in the appropriate procedures um, in order for the companies to sign you off. And then I guess the, the final thing, which it also can be a bit of a rate limiting step sometimes, is you have to have the, the appropriate infrastructure support at your site. And that often means putting in a business case to the relevant trust, which needs to be signed off so that you can get the right staff in place. Um, you have to develop your local SOPs. Um, and, you know, that that can take some time. So, as I say, we're hoping to be going by the end of the year, but uh, it does depend on all these things um, uh, going through uh, in, a, in a timely manner. Yes, and I'm assuming that business case at the trust level has involved working with different members of your team, such as intensive care. It's, it's not necessarily mm. a straightforward process, is it? Absolutely. So it involves the necessary consultant time, both at the haematology level, the ITU level, neurology input, but also nurse time, pharmacy time. Um, we outsourced our apheresis to the National Blood Service, as a number of CAR-T centres do. So we need to make sure that they have the appropriate infrastructure, uh, staff training, etc. So uh, absolutely, it's a, it's a very much a collaborative uh, approach to get this um, cellular therapy integrated into your uh, service. Yes. And do you, when you're going through that process, how much support do you get from those centres who have experience of doing this and have, you know, have already up and running? Yeah, I mean, it's really invaluable that there's a, a real generosity 
yeah, I think within the CAR-T community. So we've shamelessly pilfered a lot of the SOPs from other centres who, who have generously offered them to us. Obviously, we have to repurpose it so that it's appropriate for our site and we have to version control it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's extremely helpful. And actually, having sat on the CAR-T panel for, for many, well, several years now, it's been personally very helpful for me to hear the sort of, um, you know, um, challenges and um, issues that have been raised about various aspects of the pathway, both, you know, all the way from uh, eligibility, uh, um, apheresis to uh, infusion issues and longer term follow up issues. So, uh, you know, that's been a really positive experience, I think, for me and also for some of the other centres that are aiming to onboard um, representatives are now coming to the CAR-T panel. So I think those two things that the panel experience, but also um, just having real support um, offline, if you like, from other centres is has been absolutely invaluable. Yes, I mean, Francis, that's quite a good place to ask you uh, something that I was going to bring up, which is this national panel that we talked about in episode one that's been set up to decide, you know, who should receive treatment, there's strict eligibility criteria, sort of this very national collegiate approach. Can you see that approach continuing, at least in some form, beyond this sort of initial phase of the, the CAR-T introduction in the UK? I really hope so, is the, the honest answer to that. I think the, the national panel is really valuable for reasons that go beyond just making sure that we're following the eligibility criteria and, and selecting the right patients. I think, as Graham says, it's a, a really valuable opportunity to hear experience and to seek expertise from other centres in the country. And the, the lymphoma team in the in the UK are so supportive of one another that you really you do get a lot of help and support from the panel. Um, I think the way the panel operates will change and evolve over time. And already there are many cases that we can authorise in advance of the panel because they're clearly very straightforward. And that gives us more time to really focus on those more complex situations. Then I think the other thing that's really key with the national panel and, and probably something that's quite unique to the UK is the fact that we have patient representation on that panel. And so we're not just hearing from other experts around the country, but we're also hearing that patient voice within the panel. And I think that's really important, particularly when we're facing some of these more difficult conversations, that we've got a patient voice involved in that as well. Yes, I mean, that did come up in the first episode, but it'd be interesting actually to expand a bit, a bit on that. What, what value do you think that that patient voice um brings are they coming at it from a completely different perspective it's it's really interesting actually because these we're very fortunate i think with with the representatives we have on the panel that they are very experienced in advising the panel they've been doing it for a very long time and they have a really really good understanding of the processes that are involved and the kind of challenges that are facing us as decision makers. And so it really works in both ways that they're very much representing uh, the, the patient voice and making sure that we are properly advocating for patients when we're dealing with more complex situations. But they also really hold us to account and make sure that actually we are following the criteria and, and that we're not trying to sneak things through that we shouldn't be sneaking through. So it really works in, in both directions. And I don't think that the panel would have the same value without them. Yes, actually, that's interesting. They're kind of providing a, a, a sort of oversight to the to the process. And um, so the, the way that um, licensed CAR-T treatments have been made available in the UK is through the Cancer Drugs Fund. Both Axacel and Tizacel were funded through this route 
sort of as a way of collecting more data to inform a final nice decision. We've seen that before with other treatments through the cancer drug fund. Um, Graeme, can you explain a bit more about how this works? And my understanding is that this comes to an end in 2023. So is it that at the point NICE then has to look at the data and make a decision about how to take this forward? Yes, absolutely. So when the Cancer Drugs Fund was first developed, it was a bit open-ended. So you could have drugs sit within the Cancer Drugs Fund. That would be the source of the funding for years on end. And it was just not really sustainable. So that was changed several years ago where the CDF then came under the direction of NICE. So when NICE first look at a, at a technology now, they either say, yes, we will baseline commission this, or they say, no, it's going nowhere near the NHS, or they say it'll go into the Cancer Drugs Fund for a defined period, um, during which time we'll gather data to reduce uncertainty. And that's the point of the Cancer Drugs Fund. It's all about reducing uncertainty. And the reason there is uncertainty with the CAR T cells is that they were uh, assessed with single arm phase two trials. So they, they weren't randomized trials that established their efficacy. Now, there clearly was significant efficacy in those single arm phase twos, but it's quite hard to do a proper sort of health economic uh, evaluation when you don't have a control arm. But looking at real world data as it emerges, and that's what we have been doing um, in, in the UK and a number of other countries is one way of helping address those uncertainties. So yes, NICE will look at this again, and it's a straight yes or no, basically. So either they will say, no, we won't fund it. I mean, that would be a disaster as far as I could tell for the community. And we're all sort of hoping they won't say that. Or they'll say, yes, we'll sort of put it in baseline commissioning. In other words, it's just, you know, gets funded just like any other drug. I think, though, from the point of view as us of us sort of clinicians, not much will change. I mean, when a drug goes into the Cancer Drugs Fund, in order to access it, we have to do these things called blue tech forms, which are slightly painful, but they're not too bad. Um, you have to fill in lots of um, sort of questions and, and tick lots of boxes to make sure your patient's eligible. And to be honest, that's going to continue, I'm sure, um, once it comes out of the CDF and into baseline commissioning. So I think for us, it probably won't feel any different, but it does give a long-term security uh, for uh, a funding route. Yes, and that decision um, by NICE I'm guessing that they're looking at that safety data as well and kind of how easy it is to um, sort of use this within that NHS, within that real world setting and not just that outcome data. Yes, I mean, NICE's main remit is cost effectiveness. So, you know, their bottom line is cost per quality, per quality, quality adjusted life year. That is the sort of main output. But of course, this technology is very different from normal drugs, uh, this cellular therapy. So I'm sure those other factors will come into play. You know, has this proven to be deliverable within an NHS environment? And I'm, I'm sure that answer is yes. I mean, just, you know, witnessing um, how uh, I think successful the UK has been in delivering these products. Um, so yes, I'm sure there will be a slightly wider remit than uh, other technology appraisals. Uh, Francis, I mean, we're talking about evidence. This is, a lot has happened in the past uh, sort of three years. Uh, can you outline a bit more for us about how um, the use of these treatments has moved on? What evidence do we have now that we didn't have for those indications that they're currently licensed for? I think the most recent data we had was from Zuma 7. Yeah, so 
I mean, with all of these products that we're using, the the very first setting that you really use those in is the setting of the biggest unmet need. And so in, in the world of lymphoma, that was always in the multiply relapsed refractory setting. Um, and that's really where the, the use is established. But but the next step has really been to try and look and identify what other patient groups with lymphoma might benefit from these treatments. And as is often the case with these types of trials, the, the next place to go is one step earlier in the treatment pathway and looking at what is the best option when a lymphoma has relapsed for the first time and whether using salvage chemotherapy followed by maybe more intensive treatment like an autograft remains the best option or whether actually that would be a, a really appropriate place for CAR-T to be sitting. And within that, there are also questions about can we identify which patient groups within that setting might benefit more or benefit less from this treatment? And Zuma 7 was one of the trials that was trying to address that question, um, and that was using AxiCell. But then we also have Transform, which was the lysocell equivalent of Zuma 7, and also Belinda, which was the, um, the Tisogen equivalent. And actually, all three of these trials published data at, at roughly the same time. And the data is incredibly complex and and a little bit difficult to interpret. And I would, I've got to be honest, a little bit controversial um, when you hear it being discussed at conferences, because two of those trials gave a very positive signal, suggesting that uh, CAR-T is a really beneficial option in that second line setting for a selected group of particularly high-risk patients. And the third trial didn't show that, that CAR-T was superior to standard of care. And so we're in a really interesting situation at the moment where we've got a lot of evidence and, and data available to us, but actually interpreting that data and seeing where these different products might sit in the patient pathway and trying to work out which patient groups might benefit most from these treatments is perhaps a slightly unanswered question. But these, these approvals are working their way through the system at the moment, and we will hear uh, perhaps later this year about where within the UK, where within the NICE approval process, these treatments might sit. And so we are expecting some changes. And is some of that difficulty interpretation, some of that nuance, does that come back to patient selection and our understanding? Um, I mean, I don't know if further down the line, there might be biomarkers or other kind of ways of identifying those patients who are most likely to have a successful outcome. Yeah, patient selection is, is so important. And these trials are incredibly complex to, to set up and design and run. And even a simple thing like choosing what your endpoint that you're assessing is going to be is actually very complex. And so patient selection is one aspect that's feeding into that. But actually, as clinicians, that's probably one of the most important parts for us, because we really do want to be able to make sure that we are giving each of our patients the best treatment for their particular circumstance. And at the moment, we, we only have very sort of broad tools to do that. And I think one of the changes we will see as, as CAR-T use becomes more and more established is we're going to get much better at identifying patients who are going to benefit the most from CAR-T. And biomarkers certainly have the potential to be playing into that, whether that's biomarkers about how aggressively that disease is behaving or perhaps biomarkers that we don't really have available yet in clinical practice, like looking at circulating DNA levels, for example. There's a lot that, that's going to change, I think, in that regard. Yes, I mean, this is obviously a very rapidly moving field. And, you know, we've already talked about how the UK has been quite unique and innovative in how the system for delivering CAR-T was set up in terms of things like equity of access and data collection. Graham, how confident can we be as we move forward that we will be able to build on this and keep that momentum that's clearly grown over the past few years? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think we can be confident because I think the CAR-T community is pretty close-knit. Um, you know, there was a, a, a UK forum has been set up, which I think was a had its very successful initial meeting recently. Um, the evidence from our data collection, you know, which is absolutely involves collaboration between all the CAR-T treating centres has produced some really good uh, and practice-informing um, data. So I think keeping that... Uh, sort of collegiate feel which i think will happen and we see that within the stem cell transplant treating community as well uh, is key so i think i think we can be confident that there is going to be a, a, a continued momentum within the uk for uh, you know incorporating these innovations as they arise and francis i mean there are more car t products uh, globally than are uh, licensed in the UK. Uh, UK centres more recently have started to use Tocatus in mantle cell lymphoma as well, for example. Um, Lysocell is another option. Do you Can you see the, the number of possible treatments here expanding? Oh, absolutely. I think CAR-T is here to stay. And I think the number of diseases we'll be able to treat with CAR-T is going to continue to expand. The, the place of CAR-T within that treatment pathway is going to continue to evolve. But also I think things are going to expand beyond just hematological diseases. We're going to see CAR-Ts being used in uh, non-hematological cancers, but also in, in completely non-malignant conditions. So, for example, as a form of immune suppression following solid organ transplantation or in some of the autoimmune diseases, I think the potential for CAR-T use within healthcare and within the NHS is massive. I think it's very exciting as haematologists to be there really at the, at the fore of this. But as things move forward, I think we will be sharing our expertise with a lot of other different groups, not just haematologists, but beyond that as well. Yes, that's very exciting. And I assume just market forces that as we get more products and as we get more used to manufacturing, delivering these products, that the expense might reduce as well, because we've always got that cost effectiveness balance. Yeah, that's true. And the cost effectiveness has always been uh, one of the big challenges that faces CAR-T. And I think the technology already is, is moving on in that regard. And it hopefully won't be too many years before we really get much more uh, automated systems that can deliver CAR-Ts much more quickly. So the turnaround time is less. And, and as well as being more cost effective, that could potentially have an awful lot of benefits for our patients if we can get them through the process and to the point of receiving their CAR-Ts more quickly, then that can only be beneficial. But I think on top of that, we're going to see changes in the toxicity profile of some of these CAR-Ts that um, some of these uh, more difficult to manage toxicities are lessened with some of the newer products that are coming through. And that could really play into which products we choose for which patients and how we actually deliver these treatments. At the moment, we're really dependent on patients coming in and, and receiving inpatient care for a, a period of, of usually two weeks, but sometimes even longer than that. And I can certainly see pathways in the future where maybe we'll be able to deliver some of these treatments as an outpatient uh, setting or at least part of these pathways as an outpatient and with a with toxicities which are much less and which are more easily managed as an outpatient so I think there's, a, there's an awful lot of exciting opportunities ahead. And one of those opportunities that I know you're particularly interested in is the use of Cartier myeloma so can you describe some of the work that's happening there? Oh this is it's such an exciting change for myeloma so myeloma is the main disease that I treat outside of CAR-T um, and 
it's a very different type of disease from lymphoma that unfortunately this is not a disease that we're aiming to cure but we're really aiming to control and with that in mind the the CAR T data in myeloma is looking incredibly exciting so in the relapsed refractory setting where with the currently available treatments we might be able to control myeloma for a period of months we're seeing disease control for a period of years with some of these CAR T treatments so potentially an, an absolute game changer for the world of myeloma there are currently two CAR T's for myeloma that are licensed in the US um, and we are hoping that we're going to have access to those treatments soon but as with all CAR T's manufacturing capacity is going to be a big issue uh, myeloma is more common than relapsed refractory diffuse large b-cell lymphoma for example and so the demand on these products is going to be much higher um, and the other thing that we have to bear in mind in myeloma is that the toxicities are going to be a little bit different and one of the things we particularly have to look out for is a fairly unique form of neurotoxicity which has only been reported in relation to myeloma so far so there are going to be some differences in how we manage CAR T in myeloma but I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, I'm interested in the manufacturing capacity there because as I understand it, there have been new manufacturing sites set up in Europe recently. So where there had been um, some kind of blockages in that system, they may have been alleviated a bit more. But obviously we have to plan for the future and more um, treatments, you know, more patients that expanded network. Is that one of the sort of rate limiting steps in, in delivering? delivering CAR-T? I think for the, the time being, it will be. And each new company that comes to the market uh, with a different CAR-T has to sort of try and predict what the, the capacity requirements are going to be for their product. And so while the, the more established products have really ramped up their manufacturing capacity, some of the newer uh, CAR-Ts on the market haven't quite reached that maximum capacity yet. And there are more and more factories being uh, built in Europe. But as with all aspects of CAR-T, all of these factories need to go through really strict regulatory processes before they can actually bring their CAR-Ts to the market. And that really is a, a limiting step for us. I think as manufacturing of CAR-T uh, technology improves, then then capacity is going to improve. But it's certainly one of the rate limiting steps at the moment. Uh, Graeme, we've we've talked um, quite a bit about uh, the UK system for delivering CAR T for licensed indications, and we have all the the new treatment centres coming on board. Yeah. Um, but there will be a need for more clinical trials, obviously, and sort of as we expand into these uh, new areas and new indications. How well placed is the UK now, given this infrastructure that we've put put in place um, to be involved in, to be heading up, to be kind of at the forefront of this clinical research? Mm. So I think it's I think the answer is it's mixed. Um, if I start with the negatives, because I'm a positive person and it'd be nice to finish with the positive. So the, the negatives is, you know, in the UK, we are still quite slow at setting up studies compared to America. You know, we're, we're not particularly slow compared to other European countries, but compared to America, we are. And I think that's a real shame. Um, one example I would give is that, you know, it's, it's really a two stage setup process in the UK. It has everything has to be centrally approved for central ethics, MHRA, etc. But then it has to be approved at local sites through R&D, pharmacy. And I think that's a real shame. I don't think we maximise on the fact that we have a national health service, socialised healthcare system where we could do things much more efficiently. So if anyone's listening to this who has any power over this, come and talk to us um, who are on the ground delivering trials there. You know, we could do much better, I think, in the UK there. 
Uh, on the much more positive side, there are some really good initiatives um, which do put us actually in very good um, uh, position here. One initiative I'd highlight is something called Impact, which is a, a collaborative network of trial centres, which is aimed at delivering uh, in Initially, it was stem cell transplant trials, but that's also expanding to cellular therapy trials in as quickly, in as you know, qu quicker way as possible. And there's been some really good examples of some stem cell transplant trials delivered through the Impact Network. This is a network of uh, you know sites, some of which have funding for research nurses or pharmacists to you know imp improve. Uh, delivery times for those and to support um, recruitment of patients into those um, uh, trials. So that, that's really positive. And another positive development, I think, is, you know, one thing that uh, academic um, trial offices have historically struggled to do is to deliver trials to registrational standard. You know, so if a biotech company comes to us with a new agent um, and they want to actually get a license, nearly always they have to take that through a clinical research agency or clinical research office um, to run that study. And they will often go to US sites and, uh, you know, the UK isn't often terribly high up on their list. But actually there is a, an initiative as well called ACT, Accelerating Clinical Trials, which is essentially a trial office within the UK that could, could deliver trials to registrational standard. So that does, I think, make us more attractive as a country for, say, a biotech to bring their product to uh, and for us to test those, combining the ACT sort of trials office function with the impact trial delivery function to actually deliver these trials um, and you know, get, the, get the field moving forward more quickly. Yes, I mean, I always get the sense that the, the theory is there in terms of wanting to make use of the National Health Service and uh, the data that we collect and the networks that we have through that. And I think we saw in COVID, didn't we, of how that can be put to fantastic effect with the recovery trial. And we've had all these calls for less bureaucracy and let's not go back to how it was before. And I, the MHRA have been reviewing that. Um, but I guess it's just about making sure that that actually translates into practical, practical steps. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the recovery trial, you know, from protocol to approval in nine days, you know, I mean, that really did show us what can be done when everybody is focused on the same goal. Clearly, that's not going to be deliverable routinely quite to that extent, but but it was proof of principle that, that we can um, ease the timelines and, um, yeah, uh, uh, smooth, uh, smooth the process considerably. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, to bring this episode to a close, I'd like to ask you both for your predictions. So if, you know, in the past five years, there's been so much change in this area. So if we look to the future, where would you expect us to be in, say, another five years from now? And Francis, I'll come to you first with that one. I think that's it's such an interesting question. And I'm really interested in the, the scientific aspect of CAR-T and how we, we make and design and manufacture these CAR-Ts. And I'm also a, a complete geek. And so I liken ourselves to Star Trek medicine, that we are really just at the beginning of Star Trek medicine, about really being able to personalise what we're doing, about being able to look at the individual in front of us, look at some aspects of their 
tumour and use that to inform the treatment we manufacture for them, whether that is using a CAR T that is directed against two different targets at the same time, or whether that is in some way modifying their CAR T to make it uh, more potent, um, or whether it's using it in combination with, with other drugs um, based on the, the profile of that individual patient. So I think really personalised medicine, but with much faster turnaround times so that we can almost use a CAR T almost as quickly as we could use an off-the-shelf product like a bispecific antibody. That is what I would love to see. That's a very optimistic vision of the future. I like it. And Graham, same question to you. What would your prediction be for five years from now? Yeah, well, I think you have to be a geek to be a haematologist. So yeah, there's a lot of us geeks in haematology. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think what what where I definitely see the future is immunotherapy generally and quite broadly. And Francis mentioned that, you know, there are other immunotherapy agents such as bispecific antibodies, which are going to make a big impact, um, certainly on the lymphoma space, which is very much my sort of disease interest. And what, what, what I'm fascinated to see is how the combination of bispecifics and CAR-Ts are going to impact the patient pathway. And one particular disease I'm really interested in there actually is low-grade lymphomas. So, you know, CAR-Ts are very active in follicular lymphoma. We're waiting for approvals and hopefully reimbursement in that arena. Bispecifics also are coming along almost at the same time. So at the moment we give, you know, chemo and then it relapses more chemo. And what I think we'll see quite quickly, so five years would be very pessimistic, I think. I think we might even see this within the next year, is at that stage we may be able to go bispecifics third treatment, CAR-T fourth treatment, which would absolutely revolutionize the uh, low-grade lymphoma patient pathway. So I'm very excited to see that development. Well, what a place to end the episode on. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us today. It's been fascinating to hear what it takes to deliver a CAR-T service and how that all works and how it's going to change and revolutionise treatment in this field in the future. We hope you found this series on CAR-T helpful and informative. There is also an accompanying feature looking at the evidence and key trials to date. So thank you for listening to us.